get everyone's attention and then say, okay, dog. Hello, I'm Joseph Scholz. Welcome to the Deep Culture Podcast, where we explore culture and the science of mind. This is a podcast for people who move between different cultural worlds. We talk about intercultural experiences, and we dig into the science and the psychology of culture and mind. And I'm doing that today with Yvonne Vanderpol, as usual. How are you, Yvonne? Hi, Joseph. Great being here. I'm doing fine. So the other day, one of my students asked me, do I think that technology is making foreign language learning obsolete, that because of technology, we won't, ever, we won't need to learn of foreign languages anymore? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. After all, software is getting better and better at translation. You can speak into an app on your phone and it will translate what you say. I did that in Japan and China and it was great. Well, I want to try that. I've got my phone here. So let's, let's experiment. How do you say the 4th of July in Japanese? Oh, that seems pretty easy. Well, yes and no. I mean, it translated it as July 4th, not the 4th of July. Ah, you get, I the, get difference? the difference. Yeah, because yeah. as an American, <laughs> yeah. as an American, there's yeah. a difference. The 4th of July is American Independence Day. It's a national holiday. You know, you, you see fireworks, you go on picnics. But July 4th, that's simply the day after July 3rd. But the phone translated it as July 4th, not the 4th of July. Yeah, I learned it in the States when I lived there. And when I would say, how are you going to celebrate the 4th of July? And I understood, I'm not going to ask, how are you going to celebrate July 4th? So this is an interesting example of cultural nuance in language, something that cultural bridge people deal with a lot. That's what we're going to explore in this episode, this language-culture connection. We're going to look at a few different questions. Why are certain words hard to translate? What precisely is the connection between language and culture? And does speaking a foreign language make you see the world differently? And that brings us to part one, gezelligheid and wabi-sabi. Yvonne, both of us have spent years learning foreign languages. So let's give our listeners a taste of our foreign language journeys. And of course, English is my first language. Yeah, and I'm opgegroeid in Nederland, de lage landen, and Nederlands is my muttertaal. Oh, okay, I don't speak Dutch, but I know that that's your first language. <laughs> and English is my second language. I learned it from the age of 10. Bueno, mi primera lengua extranjera era el español que aprendí en México cuando estudiaba en San Miguel de Allende. Y estudié español en la Universidad de Leiden durante un máster en América Latina. Después, cuando viví en Costa Rica, aprendí de verdad el idioma. Sugini mananda gengo toshite wa nihongo 
そして長い間日本に住んでいて毎日使ってますので Das ist bei Trainingseinheiten mit einer gemischten deutsch-niederländischen Mannschaft interessant. Ich verfolge immer noch, was vor sich geht. Aber du nicht, hä?、Eh? Oh, oh, wait, wait a second. So, wait, so we have three languages that we speak in common: English, French, and Spanish. And I'm comfortable in Japanese. I speak that pretty well. But that was German, right? Because I, I can't always tell the difference between German and Dutch because I speak neither of them. Yeah, I get you completely. No, they're close related because they're in the same language group. Tapi saya belajar bahasa Indonesia selama beberapa tahun. Saya sudah ke Indonesia berkali-kali. I don't speak Bahasa, the language of Indonesia, but I recognize it. So you've spent quite a time,、uh, quite a bit of time over there.、Huh? My Indonesian is not really fluent. It's still, still a work in progress. Oh, yes, every foreign language is forever work in progress. So, given that language learning is so hard and we've got new technology, why go to the trouble? Is it worth it? <laughs> well, great question. Well, for me, Personally, absolutely yes, it's worth it. But, but it's also related to the first question we asked ourselves today why are certain things hard to translate from one language to another? And a language is not just a way to transfer, transfer information, it reflects the way of life, the values, the thinking of that family of speakers. So, learning Spanish for me was a way to dive into another language group with a complete different structure. But it was also a shock for me to discover how different it was using Spanish in real life, not just making sentences in a classroom. When I was 19, I took a bus for 26 hours, I think, to San Miguel de Allende to study Spanish in Mexico. It changed my life. I discovered that Spanish is not just. You know, words on a page, it's an entry point into this other world. And there I was walking on cobblestone streets and I was buying chicharron, this、uh, fried pigskin from a little stands on the street. And I was, I was struggling to make sentences and talking to people, but it was really this soaking in this other cultural world. So the language practice is, is so closely related to this entering into another world. Yeah, and this is also the reason that things are sometimes hard to translate. Language reflects culture. For example, Yvonne, what words might capture some unique element of Dutch culture? For sure, that would be gezelligheid. Gezelligheid. <laughs> <laughs> you say it nice. <laughs> Please explain. Yeah, what, what it is, it translates in English. Well, best in the best possible way as coziness, but actually, it's must, much more.、Uh, it means that there is no set time and place for feeling close to friends and family in a nice and cozy atmosphere. And you shouldn't be watching the clock, for instance,、uh, once you're having a good time with others. It, it, it is the proverb coziness knows no time. 
Oh wow, gezelligheid a, kent geen tijd. Does that refer to like a cozy feeling that you share with people that you're close to, like with friends and family? No, well, yes and no, um, because interestingly enough, it's even that meetings at work can be gezellig, and it means having a good time together with others while doing the work, uh, and that's really hard to grasp mm. for foreigners. But it can also be the opposite, actually. And don't be so ongezellig is what people then say. Eh? Not gezellig, not cozy. And for instance, in my case, when I refuse cookies and sweets because I'm allergic to sugar, people find that rather ongezellig. Right. So that means so when you when you say no to cookies, you're you're not being a gezellig person. Is that right? No, you're completely right. I'm absolutely <laughs> untypical. I'm not gezellig. And, and, you know, saying no creates like a kind of disharmony when you refuse something in a cozy atmosphere. What about Japanese? Are there words that are hard to translate in Japanese? Well, of course. <laughs> I would imagine so, yes. Well, there <laughs> Tons of them. <laughs> well, there are some really famous examples like wabi-sabi, um, which it refers to a Japanese aesthetic, uh, the, the kind of beauty that can be found in things that are imperfect or incomplete Yeah, and, and to get a sense to that, you need to experience the kind of scenes or objects that represent wabi-sabi. This is something, too, that linguistic neuroscience is teaching us, not to suddenly go to neuroscience here, but language is not just a set of labels for ideas. Language is very closely related to experience. And that's why dictionary definitions are never enough. So I guess for you, learning Japanese required getting a feel for how Japanese relate to each other. Yeah, one reason it's so challenging is that Japanese has many honorific forms that depend on context. And so to practice them, you almost have to be in that situation. Can you give me an example of this situational language? Well, if you ask me how to say eat, but I have to give you several different words, each used in different situations, depending, for example, on the status of the people involved. It could be taberu, or it could be itadaku, or it could be meshiagaru, or it could be ku, depending on the situation. Wow, that's hard to imagine. <laughs> totally, right? <laughs> yes. If I'm in a formal situation, I might ask someone, meshiagarimashita ka? You know, did you eat? And that choice of words expresses deference to this other person. But if I'm talking about myself, if I want to say, I've eaten already, I've had enough, I might say, because that word expresses humility towards myself rather than respect to the other person. It really reflects the kind of deep elements of Japanese values. Yeah, I sometimes joke that, you know, Japanese show respect by pretending that the other person is superior, whereas Americans show respect by pretending that we're all equal. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, this is also interesting, but it raises a deeper question. What's the relationship between language and culture? Well, and that brings us to part two, lingua culture. 
most people understand that some words can be hard to translate. And any English speaker who has studied French, for example, learns that you have to make a distinction between two, a familiar form of you, and vous, a more formal form. And they also learn that making a cultural mistake can be worse than making a grammatical mistake, for example, using to instead of vous in the wrong situation in French. Mm-hmm, because knowing that two is more informal than vous doesn't really tell you when and how to use it. I know that I've been speaking French for many years, but I still hesitate sometimes on which one to use. Yeah. So to really get a feel for speaking French, you need to enter into the world of French speakers. But wait, if we say the world of French speakers, some people will think we're saying that there is like a single true or essential world of French. Oh, that's a good point. Well, we're not saying that there's one true essential world of French. Obviously, using French in Dakar, Senegal will be a very different experience from using it in Marrakesh or Paris or Montreal. So it's not a single one thing. Yeah, and the world of French speakers is complex and dynamic and ever-changing, like with many other transnational languages. Just think of Chinese, Arabic, English, Russian, Swahili, Spanish. So culture is also dynamic and complex in a very similar way. And there are people, in fact, who use the word lingua culture to describe the relationship between language and culture as a single thing. Uh, the linguist uh, Paul Friedrich first used this term. Uh, Michael Agar, who's a linguistic anthropologist, he uses the term languaculture. Yeah, and in effect, by putting language and culture together into one word, culture, you are saying that language and culture are two parts of a larger whole. Languages are alive, like a superorganism. They're constantly changing and evolving which reflects the lives of its speakers, their, their shared culture. Uh, which is why we might call Latin a dead language. There isn't a large enough community of Latin speakers to keep it alive and evolving. In the same way, shared cultural patterns emerge from the interaction in a community. Language and culture are both emergent properties. Um, this idea of emergent property, it comes from complexity theory. <laughs> here you are, but maybe you're getting a little bit too theoretical here, Joseph. Oh, come on. Our, I think our listeners love this stuff. Okay, I'll go ahead. Then. Okay, so, so an emergent property refers to how simple interactions create complex phenomena. So, for example, individuals buying and selling stock, which is a simple interaction, creates complex unpredictable patterns in the stock market. You can never predict what's going to happen. Emergent phenomena is complexity that emerges from simple interaction. And language culture too, right? Right. So culture emerges from interaction and language develops in parallel to that. So language and culture, lingua culture, it's this larger whole of shared meaning. Okay, if I got it right, language reflects shared cultural experience. So, for example, the meaning of the words, the 4th of July, reflects the experience that Americans share related to the 4th of July. With that in mind, well, let's move on to part three, seeing the world in a new way. 
you sometimes hear people say that they feel like a different person when they speak another language. Do you feel that way? Well, I I definitely shift between different ways of expressing myself. Like I'm I'm more reserved speaking Japanese than when I speak Spanish. I'm still playing my own music. I'm still being myself, but it's like playing on a different instrument. How How is it for you? What I do note is that with speaking Spanish in the Central American context, for example, uh-huh. I feel so much at ease and speak as if I'm hanging out with people on a porch, you know, <laughs> nice. just outside, weather is <laughs> nice, and I'm just hanging out and chatting a bit. But I'm still curious, are we really looking at the world in a different way then? That's a difficult question. And that's something that linguists have been arguing about for a hundred years And do you refer here to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis? Yes, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. That's that's the idea that language shapes perception. And it's been tested in lots of different ways. For example, some languages have fewer color words than others. So linguists will test whether people with fewer color words have trouble perceiving the shades that their language doesn't have words for. And there's some evidence that the language one speaks can relate to our ability to distinguish shades of color. Mm, that's interesting. What else? Well, there, there's some quite clever research that I thought was interesting uh, that shows, for example, that when describing a key, so imagine a key in your mind, like the kind that you use to open a locked door, that when describing a key... Spanish speakers tend to use descriptive words that emphasize the kind of curved or rounded quality that a key has, whereas German speakers, when describing a key, are more likely to use words that emphasize its kind of jagged or or rough nature. (laughs) But why? Well, those researchers will say that it's because in Spanish, the word for key is a feminine noun. And so their attention goes to the more feminine, stereotypically feminine aspects of the key, whereas in German, it's a masculine noun. And so that may affect the aspects of the key that people notice. Wow, fascinating. I mean, it doesn't seem that useful to me in terms of intercultural understanding. I don't think Germans and Spaniards are not often arguing about the shape of keys, are they? (laughs) That's true. There's a lot of other research that look at language and cognition from the field of neurolinguistics or cognitive linguistics, for example. The research that has really fascinated me is related to the cognitive processes related to language, and in particular, something called embodied simulation theory. But is this going to get technical? <laughs> oh, of course not. <laughs> Just stick with me here. For for a long time, the dominant idea was that language is basically a symbolic system, a set of concepts that we manipulate in our mind so that language is like a mental code or a set of labels for our thoughts. So if I say dog, you understand that I'm thinking about a dog. Because you know the concept dog. Because I know the concept dog and I know that the sound dog goes together with that concept. So if that's the way that language works, then in order to learn a new language, what we're doing is learning a new set of labels for our thoughts. Well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it makes sense, but embodied simulation tells a very different story. Does it tell a story about a dog? <laughs> well, in fact, it does tell a story about a dog. In, I mean, it's a very different way of looking at how language works in the mind. Embodied simulation theory says that linguistic meaning is not primarily a manipulation of symbols. It's an embodied simulation. In other words, and here's where the dog part comes in, when I say dog, this triggers a simulation in your body and mind based on your experience with dogs. <laughs> so that, that simulation is like a recreation of your experience with dogs? More like remembering than like mental manipulation. And if you want to test this yourself, you can try this experiment. When you're at a party, uh, just when you're feeling cozy. <laughs> okay, well, it's very gazella. <laughs> <laughs> See, I couldn't remember how to pronounce it. But get everyone's attention and then say, okay, dog. <laughs> And then ask everyone to tell you what kind of image comes to mind. And people will not say that they had a kind of generic symbolic dog in their mind. Rather, they will give you a concrete answer. They'll say, oh, Dalmatian or Poodle or German Shepherd. And that's because the, the word dog, it's triggering a simulation based on their experience with dogs. So when I ask Japanese people this question, many of them answer Shibaken or the Shiba dog, which is a breed of dog that is really common in Japan and many Japanese probably grew up with. Oh, you over hearing you talk about this. For me, it was like a dozen of different dogs because every day I work in the nature near by my house and I'm the only person, almost the only person without a dog. Well, how, how about this? If I say wet dog, what image comes to your mind? <laughs> then I see this golden retriever that has just jumped in a puddle on the moors here and all wet and maybe shaking and running happily to his own, its owner. <laughs> That's a beautiful image. But <laughs> interestingly, you are not simply putting two concepts together. You're not just putting the concept wet plus the concept dog together in a kind of mental manipulation. What you're doing is the words wet dog creates a simulation of experience that you've had with dogs. Yeah, interesting. And if that's true, then learning a new language requires something more than learning a new mental code. Exactly. So learning a new language means we have to create new mental simulations. And those simulations need to be based on our experience, not just some mental symbol or definition that we find in the dictionary. Mm -hmm, I get that. But what about abstract concepts like government or happiness? We don't really have mental images for those things. That's true. So that's a question about embodied simulation theory. How, how do you embody something abstract like government or happiness? And the research in that area focuses on metaphoric understanding, that we understand these things metaphorically. So we say that we find happiness. We, we speak about happiness as though it's an object, or we talk about being full of joy. We're speaking about joy as though it were a liquid that has volume. 
so can they actually test what's happening in people's minds when they are using language? Well, there is a lot of research that does that. And if you're interested in that, I totally recommend the book Louder Than Words by Benjamin Bergen. Uh, it totally changed how I understand language. It introduces research like this. Uh, for example, they showed people a smiling face and they asked, the, they asked, what is this person feeling? When they asked that question in a library, people were more likely to answer happiness, which is emotion as an object that you might look for, like, a, like you look for a book. Like, yeah, like a book in the library. Right. Whereas if you ask the same question in a bar, people are more likely to say this represents joy, which is emotion as a metaphoric liquid, something that you can be filled with. Wow, that's interesting and a bit weird. Is there anything easier to learn about this than buying a book? Well, if you just want a, a five-minute introduction, uh, go to YouTube, do a web search for the Brain Dictionary. Uh, it introduces super cool research, uh, which mapped the different areas of the brain that were activated by particular words. You, know, you can see a rotating brain with words mapped onto it. And this research shows that language activates the brain areas associated with the related experience. So, for example, if you hear the word make a fist, it activates the areas of the brain that are used when you actually do make a fist, even if you aren't visualizing the making of a fist. So language use is not managed by some special or separate language module in the brain. It's closely related to our lived experience. And we used to believe that there was a kind of special language module in the brain, but apparently that's not the way it works. Language is connected to our lived experience. And of course, shared lived experience is culture. So can embodied simulation theory help us answer this question about whether speaking a new language makes us see the world in a new way? I think it helps. Embodied simulation theory shows us that language is more than a code. Uh, it's not just a label for thoughts. It reflects the shared experience of the people that speak it. So to internalize it, to internalize a language, to get a feel for the subtle expectations of what things mean, of its, their unique flavor, you need that shared cultural experience. So if I really want to understand Gesellekeit, is that right? That's right. <laughs> then I need to share that experience with Dutch speakers. And it's that experience that will give me the, the sensation of entering into another world. Well, actually recording this podcast with a cup of tea over a distance of 10,000 miles was pretty gezellig. But as you know, coziness knows no time, but by now it might be time for us to wrap up. It has been great spending this time with you, this cozy, gezellig time with you, Yvonne. And it was also with the flavor of wabi-sabi. Yes. The Deep Culture Podcast is sponsored by the Japan Intercultural Institute, an NPO dedicated to intercultural education and research. I am the director of GII. 
If you're interested in learning more about culture and the mind, one place to start is my book, The Intercultural Mind. In fact, I just learned that it's been translated into Turkish. I thought that's really cool. Wow. And check out Yvonne's wonderful book, Reflections on Intercultural Craftsmanship. It talks about how the starting point for intercultural effectiveness is understanding the cultural patterns of our own mind. If you liked today's episode, we'd really like to hear from you. Leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or write us at dcpodcast at japanintercultural.org. Thanks to our sound engineer, Robinson Fritz, and to everyone at JII. And thanks to you, Yvonne. Can't wait to get together again next month. That would be wonderful. Well, thank dear listeners for being with us today. Thanks, Joseph. See you again. <laughs>